you've, if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to 1 Peter. We're going to be at the very end of chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 this morning. We're, we're walking our way through uh, this, this epistle here, and we've, we've titled this series Unbreakable. The reason being, uh, what we've seen thus far are that there were these unbreakable truths that are yours as a believer in Christ if you've placed your faith in Jesus and his work on your behalf, and that that should lead us to this resolve in our holiness, in the way that we live out the commands of Scripture, that should be similarly unbreakable. Today what we're going to see is that there's a pinnacle to this, and that we see it in Scripture, which is eternal and unbreakable. And and we're going to continue our way through this, and Peter is working... uh, with a group of churches who are experiencing some degree of persecution, and he's just trying to encourage them to hold fast. That's the general picture of what's happening throughout the, the letter of First Peter. He wants them to just be immovable, unbreakable, that whatever it is that they're experiencing as a result of their faith in Jesus would not stop because somebody starts to press back against them which is every bit as applicable for us today as it was uh, for the churches that that Peter wrote to in what is modern-day Turkey. We may not experience uh, quite as overt persecution at times. Sometimes, as Christians, even here in America, uh, there are people who would speak against you as a believer or whatever the case might be. But for the most part, uh, the kinds of persecution that we are experiencing today today pale in comparison to what people experience around the world today and what people experienced at this time when Peter was writing. That being the case, when we do run into things that press against us because we are believers, we should be similarly unbreakable and immovable in our faith as Peter was encouraging his readers at this time. And so we're just going to continue to walk our way forward, uh, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 1 Peter 2, Verse 3, that's where we're headed this morning. And Peter's going to continue his conversation on holiness. And so we're going to follow along with him in that. Remember, last week we defined holiness as being set apart for the glory of God. That that's what the Israelite people were supposed to be. That that's what we're supposed to be as Christians. That God himself is set apart. He's totally other from what we experience in the broken world around us. And he exists in that state for his own glory. He's set apart for his glory, and as believers, we're supposed to be set apart for the glory of God. And we looked at some motivations for that, that we should be motivated to just wrestle with our own sinfulness because of a relationship with our loving Father, that we should be motivated to live a holy life because of reverent fear. He is going to judge. He's going to judge impartially is what Peter says. We're all going to stand before the Lord uh, on that last day, and he's going to judge impartially. And then last, we saw that we should be motivated to engage in a lifelong process of growing in our holiness out of a, a right understanding and appreciation for the cost of redemption. And so this morning, Peter is going to move forward in that. So I'm going to pick this up in verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not out of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The reason we're bridging across what you've got marked as a chapter distinction and also a different heading in your text is because these two sections, four verses at the end of chapter one and three verses at the beginning of chapter two, are actually parallel to each other. Peter deals with two topics in both places. He talks about love, particularly love among brothers and sisters in Christ, and then he says something about scripture, the word of God, and he does that twice. He does it once from verses 122 to 125, and then he does it again from 2.1 to 2.3. And so we're going to take them together, and we're actually going to deal with the two topics together instead of just verse by verse. So we're going to look at what Peter has to say about love among brothers and sisters in the church, and then we're going to look at what he has to say about Scripture and its uh, nature. And so that's how we're going to work with this. So first, we're going to see this, that love is the pinnacle of our holiness. Look with me at verse... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He says, having purified your souls. That process is both done and happening. Last week, we talked about the difference between positional and practical holiness. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, you gained positional holiness. You stand righteous before the Lord thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. His blood covers you, poured out for your sin, making you righteous before the Father. That's done. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You cannot do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to maintain it. You could not ever do anything to maintain it. It is a free gift of grace by the Lord given to you through faith. Positional holiness. Your soul has been purified when you obeyed the truth of the gospel and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. At the same time, your process of purifying your soul is ongoing, that we grow in practical holiness as we live out our life, that from the moment you become a believer to the moment that you die, you should be growing in your holiness. It's ongoing. It's practical in that sort of way. As you live out your time here on earth, you should be continually growing in what it means to be set apart for the glory of God in your actions and behaviors and motivations and speech. That's something that we undertake lifelong as believers. And so it's important that we look at two truth reminders that we saw in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. The first one is this. Your circumstances have a purpose. That purpose is sanctification. Now, two weeks ago when we talked about uh, those first 12 verses, uh, I, I made a point here about your, your circumstances having a purpose and that purpose being sanctification. And then later I clarified that, but I want to do it right next to it now. There are times where you bump into things in life that are incredibly evil. And it has nothing to do with something that you've done. And it has nothing to do with something that the Lord would want to have done in your life. When we bump into moments of intense, intense evil, think about believers, Christian brothers and sisters in Syria who are dealing with the evil of ISIS. The Lord in his goodness 
does not create that evil and send it into your life so that he can sanctify you. Instead, as evil exists in the world because humanity is broken and sinful and our world is broken and sinful, the sovereignty of God overrides that and he's able to turn that thing into something that sanctifies you. He's able to take the evil that we experience, the brokenness that we experience in the world and use it for our sanctification. It does not mean that he creates that evil. It does not mean that he creates your incredibly broken circumstances and forces them upon you so that he can mold you into the image of the Lord. We live in a world that's broken and sinful. And sometimes the brokenness and evil and sinfulness crashes into our life, but it is not beyond the scope of God's sovereignty to take that evil and turn it into something that sanctifies you more and more into his image. Your circumstances have a purpose, and it's because God and his sovereignty can use even the brokenness of our world to mold us into his image. That's our first truth reminder this morning. The second one is this, that the goal of your sanctification is increased obedience to Jesus. That's what it means to be sanctified. That's what it means to grow in our holiness. Suffice it to say this, having, been pure, or having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, you have been purified and you are being purified. Positionally, you, it's done. It was achieved for you on the cross by Jesus. Practically, it's working itself out in your life. And so what is the purpose of that? Where is that headed? What does that look like? Peter says, well, it looks like sincere brotherly love. If you've got an NIV, your version says, having purified your souls uh, by your obedience to the truth so that you have sincere love for one another. We ought to genuinely love one another in the church because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The root word of love in the first half of this verse is phileo. It's a brotherly affection or fondness. It desires collective good. Peter says we have this simply because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You were born into it when you, came, when you became a believer. That because we have faith in Jesus, we should be able to look across the sanctuary here, pick out somebody we don't even know, and say, I do genuinely care for that person. I want their good. I want our good as a body of Christ. In a similar way, we should be able to look at a brother or sister separated from us by time or space or continent or whatever the case might be and just know that they're a brother and sister in Christ and say to ourselves, I I have this brotherly sort of affection for that person. I want their good. I want our good as a church. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you gained a whole bunch of spiritual siblings and we are to want each other's good. But then Peter goes on and actually gives a command. Since you have this sincere brotherly love, Love one another. That seems redundant. You've got brotherly love. Love one another. It seems redundant because we only have one word for love in English, and it's love. He's got four words for love, and he uses two different ones here. Because you have phileo, love for one another, agape, love, love one another. He says because you have brotherly love, you should... You should grow in this other type of love, agape, which is a self-sacrificing kind of love that desires the good of the other, most often at expense to yourself. Peter says that we are to grow in that. 
When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you gained a bunch of brothers and sisters, and you just love them because they're brothers and sisters. And then he goes on and he says, but you should grow in the fact that you love them in a sacrificial sort of way. The pinnacle of your holiness is to love like that. To move beyond simply loving one another because you are brothers and sisters in Christ, but to love one another because you value the person sitting across the room that you don't know above yourself. Because you value the person separated from you by space or continent or whatever the case might be above yourself. You want their good more than our good. You want their good at expense to your good, potentially. Our holiness should work in such a way that that kind of love becomes obvious within the church. Think about it this way. If you've got a brother or a sister, if you have siblings in any, in any fashion, you were born into having to love them. And at a certain age in life, you probably strongly disliked them. And there were times where you wanted nothing to do with them, you did not want to be like them, you did not want to share anything with them, including air. <laughs> but they were your brother or your sister. And so you loved them. But at the same time, as you grow and you get older, your love for them grows. And it should move beyond something that's just because you've got the same genetic code. Because you share blood. You grow for them in a way that desires to love them in a, in a self-sacrificing sort of way. That if something were happening to your literal biological brother or sister, you would give of yourself in order to ease the burden for them. Peter says that's the way the church should love one another. You place your faith in Christ, you gain brothers and sisters, you have genuine affection for them. Now, grow in the fact that you would want their good above yours. That is a picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He gave of himself at the expense of his life for our eternal good. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be willing to do similarly. Jump down to 1 Peter 2.1. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The natural question is, how do I grow in that kind of love for my brothers and sisters in Christ? And he gives you the answer. He says, put these things away. Literally, Take them off. It's an allusion to like removing clothing. That's not a one-time act. It has to be done every day. And I go one step further and to say that when you take something off, you typically put something back on. Peter says, as you take off these things, malice, deceit, slander, hypocrisy, you put on that agape love for one another. As the Holy Spirit guides and empowers us in the process of taking off the following things, we put on that kind of love for one another. So these are the things we're supposed to take off. Malice, which would be wickedness intentionally directed toward another person. He says to remove all deceit, which is dishonesty, meant to hurt another person. He says to get rid of hypocrisy or insincerity. The masking of inward evil by an outward show of false righteousness. He says to remove envy, which would be being jealous of the good that comes to another person. And to remove slander, which is speech that's intended to harm another person. 
all of these things that Peter is encouraging us to remove are things which aim to harm another. He says, within the body of Christ, there is no place for that. You take those off and you put on agape, self-sacrificing love for one another. The pinnacle of our holiness as brothers and sisters in Christ is to love one another in a way that values the good of the other above our own. I want to I just stop here for a second and provide some thoughts. It is impossible for any one individual believer in a self-sacrificing manner to absorb all of the love needs for every other believer on the face of the planet. Does that make sense? It's not possible for Taylor Goodwin to love every brother and sister in Christ on the face of the planet in a way that would absorb their needs. He cannot do that. It is possible for the church collectively to love every member of the church collectively in that sort of way. Which means when we watch the news or when we see the things that are going on in the world and we see brothers and sisters in Christ suffering and afflicted in various ways, in various places, it is not the call of every single individual member of the body of Christ to take on every single issue that arises within the church. It is the call of the church collectively to do that, which means at the very least, as a believer, you could be doing the following. You sit down to watch the news and you see reports of things that are going on in Syria with ISIS or you see reports of some of the turmoil that we are facing here in our own nation or you see various kinds of suffering taking place around the world, your prayer should be twofold. Lord, I pray that you would mobilize the church to meet my brother and sister's needs. Secondarily, Lord, are you calling me to take that up personally? And then you've got to be willing to be obedient. Because if he says yes, then that might cost you self-sacrificing sort of way. It might cost you time. It could cost you money. It could cost you energy or resources or whatever the case might be. But our prayers, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see other brothers and sisters in Christ in need, should be twofold. Lord, use the church to meet that need and display to the world the goodness and truth of the gospel. And secondarily, Lord, are you calling me to be the one that does that? And then answer accordingly. There are a number of you within our church who are three weeks away from running a half marathon or a full marathon in order to take water to people in Africa. It was not the call of every single person in this church to run for the sake of water. It was the call of some, and you answered that. It's not the call of every single person in this body or in any particular congregation to take up all the causes that exist on the face of the planet. It is the call of the Big C Church to do that for itself. And it could be, at times, your personal calling that the Lord directs you to. And we need to be obedient in those times. Here's the second part of this. Peter talks about the Word. He talks about Scripture. And he says that the Word of God is the enduring picture 
of our holiness. Look at verses 23 to 25, chapter 1. He says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. He says, since you have been born again. That's the third time we've seen that. Here's your truth reminder. You have been born again. We're not going to be able to escape that phrase or that idea throughout this letter. Peter sees it as part and parcel with living a holy life. You're not once you, what you once were, Peter says. Live like it. Live like that's true. Live like you've been made new. Like your old sinful self is gone and you've taken up this new life empowered by the Holy Spirit. Live like that. And Peter says, you've been born again not of imperishable seed, or not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The word that saved you is eternal. It is the abiding, enduring truth of who Jesus is. It is the abiding, enduring truth of your need for a Savior. It is the abiding and enduring picture of what it looks like to live a holy life. It has no expiration date. The truth of God has no expiration date. And he offers this quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is like grass. In all its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Isaiah wrote that to the Israelite people as they were being scattered into exile, taken from their homeland, captive. He wrote it as a comfort in order to display that God's word and promise of a Messiah is going to stand forever. It will come to pass. Peter repurposes that for the church to say, look, I understand that you're experiencing persecution, but the truth of the word will stand forever. You can count on it. It's not going to leave you. There should be comfort in that, that what we see in scripture is absolutely true, that this indestructible inheritance that we have is absolutely true. It's going to come. You will be taken to heaven. There is a different place. The people who are persecuting you, Peter says, are like the flowers of the field. They're going to bloom in season and then they're going to die and they will be gone. No more. But what you have is enduring. It's going to last forever. Jump down to 2 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. He says, like newborn infants long for spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I've not had my own baby yet, but I've been around some babies when they're hungry, and they just crave, and everybody knows that they're craving. And everybody is going to have to stop because the baby is craving. Peter says that's the way you should long for the word. That you crave. It's a description of what God has done for us. The word is the description of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. The word is a description of what it looks like to follow him. It's a description of what's coming in the future. And Peter says, crave that like a baby craves milk. Like an infant when it's hungry. Crave the truth of the word. If, he says, you have tasted that the Lord is good. In terms of our growth in holiness, sin is not ever going to taste bitter until the Lord tastes sweet. 
You will not ever desire to rid yourself of sin and its evil until you have seen the Lord and his goodness. There is a video uh, on YouTube that circulated a couple of years ago, and it was of these farmers in the Ivory Coast. They farm cocoa beans. They have no idea what they're used for. If you've ever eaten just a straight cocoa bean, it's bitter. It's not very good, but it makes a Hershey bar, which is delicious. And so a man takes a chocolate bar back to these farmers in the Ivory Coast. And he's asking them questions about what their farming process is like and why do they do it and what's it all about. And they don't really have any idea where the beans go after they harvest them and send them off. And then he hands them the Hershey bar. And they are amazed. Because the cocoa bean by itself is not very good, but all of a sudden they are tasting and seeing that the cocoa bean is actually very good. It turns into Hershey's. Peter says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then you should crave more of him. If you have not tasted that the Lord is good, his commands are just bitter. (laughs) Why would he tell me to do this? Why would he tell me, maybe more importantly, not to do this? That does not taste good. But if you've seen the truth of Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf, then Everything that the Lord says in his word is something that you should crave. If you've seen the goodness of God in his word, you shouldn't be able to curb your craving for it. That's what Peter is saying. What's the pinnacle of our holiness? It's to love one another, particularly within the church. What's the picture of our holiness? It's the enduring word of God. And I want to offer one more thing this morning. It comes from just understanding the run of what Peter is saying throughout the letter up to this point. And that's what is the perspective of our holiness? Eternity is the perspective of our holiness. Remember, you have an indestructible inheritance. Here's what Peter has said in the letter thus far. That this is not your home. That there's hope in something better in the future, this indestructible inheritance. And that suffering may come in this life, but it's okay because your Savior came once and He's coming again and He's going to take you to the indestructible inheritance. And because of that, you should strive to live a holy life, even in the face of your persecution. That because you've got a relationship with the loving Father who's going to righteously judge at some point, you should have reverent fear of that, but he's bought you redemption at a very great cost to himself. You should strive to live a holy life. And that should look like love for one another within the church and a craving for God's word. And as he's writing to a persecuted church scattered throughout this area that's now Turkey, he says... You should do that in light of eternity. Because whatever you're facing right now is temporary. Peter's encouragement is for his readers not to be distracted by temporary rewards of earth, but instead to be focused on the eternal rewards of heaven. Could they have stood out less if they lived a way that followed the pattern of the world rather than what God had told them to do in Scripture? Absolutely. Would it have lessened their suffering and persecution? Possibly. Would it have been worth it? Peter says, no way. Not worth it. Because who we are and how we live is defined by eternity, not by the temporary.
the rewards or punishments of this earth should not be our focus. They shouldn't be what we're worried about. They should not dictate how we live. Instead, our life receives its definition from a Father who loves us and has redeemed us at a costly price. Peter's trying to help build that perspective into the hearts of his readers. They're a church in the midst of persecution, and yet all he calls them to is normal Christian life. He doesn't call them to something heroic or above what any other believer is called to. He says, in the midst of your persecution, just follow Christ. That's all I'm asking you to do. And the same is true for us today. In the midst of whatever we face in our circumstances today, just follow Christ. That should evidence itself by a love for one another within the church. It should evidence itself by a craving for the word of the Lord where we see the picture of what it looks like to be holy, set apart for God's glory. A picture of what it looks like for Christ to come and redeem us. A picture of what it looks like to have a loving father. Live in response to that, Peter says. Eternity is the perspective of our holiness. It is not possible for any one person to meet all the needs of all the brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. It is not possible for any one person to purchase their own righteousness because of their holy living, but it is possible for every single believer in the body of Christ to live in response to the fact that Jesus came and purchased your salvation and to be constantly praying that the church because of the way it loves one another within its body, would resound to the glory of God and the goodness of the gospel to non-believers the world over, and that the church would meet the needs of the church around the world. And when that calling is for you in particular, we act in obedience. When we taste and see that the Lord is good, we crave more of him, and we run to him in his word, and we get a picture of what it looks like to be holy. And we just love one another in response to that. That's the calling of the church. And that all of that happens for God's glory, set apart for the glory of God. That in all of those things, your growth in holiness, the way you love your brothers and sisters in the church, the way you crave God and his word, you would be able to say at the end of it, all glory be to Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team, or Brian, there he is, to come back up. And we're going to sing one last song, All Glory Be to Christ. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive. All glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever see indestructible inheritance. All glory be to Christ. Let's stand up and sing.